Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Necessary Evil. Not going to lie to you, I'm a little angry this morning, so I may start off hot as I explain why, but I will simmer down and we can have ourselves a nice civil discussion. So last night, there was a segment aired on MSNBC's AM Joy, which is Joy Reid's talk show. She's a real treasure. Uh, a guest on the panel actually said, verbatim, I mean, these, these audible noises actually left his oral canal in this exact order. He said, uh, c- completely unchallenged, by the way, I mean, not a single person pressed him or asked for a single solitary shred of verifiable or even circumstantial evidence. He said, if you want the economy to open, this is not a nationally broadcasted news station, by the way, in millions of viewers worldwide. He said, if you want the economy to open, then you want more black and brown people to die. (laughs) Now, assuming you haven't been in a coma for the last decade or suffered any recent traumatic brain injury, then I know you're not surprised in the least at the blatant and shameless race baiting tactics of one Joy Reid. Okay, but I got to tell you, this one struck me as particularly abhorrent because two years ago, I'll be honest, I would have been upset at this comment, but I would have just chalked it up to him being an idiot and not let it get under my skin. But make no mistake about it. This guy is not an idiot. He is extremely intelligent, in fact, and he knows exactly how damning it is to have the label of racist tied to your name in America. Okay, short of rapist murderer and pedophile, I'm not sure there's anything worse than hating someone for the color of their skin. And if we are going to agree that being a racist is horrific, then we have to agree that somewhere close to that is indeed unjustly accusing someone of being something so horrific. Okay? So if you call me a racist, you better have you some damn good evidence, buddy. Those are fighting words right there. And just to illustrate how serious of a charge that is, if you come into my house and call me a racist, dog, I will mash you savagely and relentlessly until I implant the top row of your teeth into the back of your skull. Toss you down the well out back, tell the sheriff next spring, he'll understand. But this lying, race-baiting fraud, whose name shall not be spoken, knows that racist is a horrific label to be associated with, so he knows that people will obey his command if he defines anyone in opposition to him as a racist. Well, guess what? I want the economy open, so go ahead. Call me a racist, you insufferable jackal. Folks, when your enemy is making a fool of himself, you do not interrupt. So please, you have the floor. I didn't think so. Phew, okay, back down to earth here. Sorry, that got a little weird there, but everything's fine. We're going to take a nice deep breath, and we're going to get into why we're actually here today. So, this is the second part of the universal healthcare discussion, so if you haven't heard episode three, which is my argument against socialized medicine, then please go back to that first so that we can be on the same page here. This episode will feature some of the strongest points for socialized medicine that I have encountered. Now, I've already told you that I oppose it overall, but listen, it is vitally important that if we really want to arrive at the best conclusion, not the right conclusion or the left conclusion, the best conclusion, that we meticulously analyze both sides of these issues. So, my fellow righties, 
You've been very comfortable on this podcast thus far. Unless, of course, you're the smug elitist prick or the bloodthirsty warhawk variety of the right winger, uh, in which case, kick rocks. But for those who agree with me, in large part, you've had it nice and easy thus far. Well, that is about to change. If you want to be sure that you're against Medicare for All, and not just against it because Sean Hannity and Ben Shapiro tell you to, then you cannot afford to be closed-minded or standoffish. I've spoken at length about the lefties who only hold opinions that Don Lemon or Rachel Maddow spout off, but the same goes for the right. You can make up your own damn mind, so stop letting other people think for you. So, hear me out. We can be opposed to universal health care and still admit that there are some very legitimate points coming out of the left. I'm not someone who sees the left as something completely useless. We would not have people like myself on the far right, which again is just a spectrum for the size and the scope of the federal government, uh, who speak openly about the military-industrial complex without the left. So I thank them for that genuinely. Uh, We would also not be talking about the catastrophic Uh, environmental effects that our lifestyle creates if it were not for the left. Now, I don't agree with their solutions, but do you really think that capitalists would be as open to exposing big corporations who dump toxic waste in the oceans? No. All right. Uh, We would also probably not speak as openly about working conditions if it were not for the left. Again, I don't I don't like, you know, the solutions to these problems, but the problems exist and I thank them for shedding light on them. And if we're going to fix the healthcare system, which both sides agree needs fixing, then maybe some of their ideas can be implemented or at least, you know, plant the seed for another solution. All right. First, I want to get into uh, the whole idea of like a for profit healthcare service. Now, the whole reason that I love the free market is because of freedom. I don't have to buy products from companies I do not support. I don't have to buy products which I view as overpriced. I don't have to buy products or services from businesses who do not treat their customers up to my standard. Well, if I have a heart attack or a stroke, the clock's ticking. And it's ticking pretty damn fast. I don't have time to be shopping around and haggling over the price. You as a hospital basically name your price in that scenario, and you provide the services before you even tell me the cost. And then you send me the bill later. Um, You know, if I need a rotator cuff repair... I can visit five or six different clinics. I can read all the reviews, the patient testimonies from each doctor, and I can pick the one that fits the best for my situation. I don't have that option for life-threatening interventions. So, you know, you have a heart attack on vacation, you rush to the nearest hospital and have a triple bypass done, survive, God willing, and then you're strapped with a hundred grand in medical bills, even with good insurance. So I don't know, that just, that doesn't sit well with me. Um, And it leads us right into this supply and demand curve. Us righties love that old curve, boy. And if there's, you know, because if there's an increased demand uh, for a certain product or service, someone comes in to fill that void, fix that problem, sell something of equal or greater quality at or below market price, and it's a win-win situation. Well, with healthcare products, drugs in particular, the demand curve is a little different. It's not thousands of new people who need heated seats in their forerunner, right? It's it's a, usually a small number of families who will pay literally any price you name for an EpiPen since their kid has a peanut allergy, or it's a small number of families who will pay any price you name for a recombinant clotting factor to save their kid who has hemophilia. I mean, these drug companies make ungodly sums of money because they can straight up name their price because they know that if your little Timmy has type 1 diabetes, 
then you will give up your home, your car, your entire livelihood to make sure he has the insulin that he needs to survive. So Mylan is a company that owns about 95% of the EpiPen market. They have this really effective auto-injector mechanism, I'm sure you've seen it, and it allows for effective, safe, and immediate intervention of the drug, um, or administration of the drug. And uh, they have a very, very strong patent on these auto-injectors, making it nearly impossible to compete with them. And listen, I'm a fan of patents. If you make something awesome, I shouldn't be able to steal it and sell it for myself. But when you make the best drug administering instrument on the planet and nobody else can compete, then you can name your price. Because like I said, parents will pay literally anything to save their child's life. Have you ever seen a kid in anaphylactic shock? Okay, I, I've never been to war, but I can't imagine too many things being more terrifying than having your fully conscious little girl's throat swell to the point that she can no longer pass air into her lungs and watching her asphyxiate to death right there in your arms, begging you for air, begging you to fix it. Visualize it, make it hurt. Consider the desperation you would feel in that scenario, all right? This is why the Myelin EpiPen price exploded from about $50 in 2007 to over 500 now. Also conveniently, they expire after a year, so that's an annual fee you're paying. But they know that parents will do anything to avoid that situation. And you know, with the patent, they have virtually no competition, which is why in the same time span, from 2007 to 2015, the salary of the Mylan CEO, Heather Bresch, rose from, get this, rose from 2.4 million to just under 19 million dollars. Okay? This rapacious slime ball is getting fabulously wealthy as she gouges parents' eyes out. It's sick. And you can say, you know, oh, well why don't we just deregulate so that we can let in more competition, right? And you know, the reason right-wingers like myself love deregulation is because that's what it does. You roll back some of the red tape and the hoops that you have to jump through to make a certain product, and it allows for more people to come in, open a business, and allows for more competition, which inevitably leads to better and cheaper products. Because, you know, if Ford is making cars that last longer, uh, especially in the internet era, I can I can learn that information with just a couple clicks on the computer. I can shop around. I can hit Chevy. I can hit Toyota. I have tons of choices to choose from. And I can even pick the cheap beater from the used lot, and that's fine too. Well, I don't have that option with drugs, all right? One, because of the patent laws, but two, because I ain't giving my kid some drug that's not rigorously tested and regulated by a team of chemists and pharmacists. All right. I mean, if you don't think people are going to cut corners to make a quick buck, then you don't know people. All right. And you can say, oh, well, you know, if their product doesn't work, then people won't buy it and they'll go out of business, which is usually my argument. Well, you know what else happens when the product doesn't work? In this case, people die. Kids suffocate to death. They drown in their own spit. All right. This ain't a new toothpaste company that's cutting corners whose product breaks down your kids enamel. And we're talking life and death here. So yes, deregulation lowers prices. Yes, when the government comes in, gets involved in anything, the price skyrockets, always. And yes, it opens the door to even more corruption in the industry when you are forced to pay for it through taxes. But I don't know, I'm just, I'm not willing to risk my kid dying in the name of free market economics. So 
as much as it pains me to say this, deregulation is out when it comes to these drugs. It's out, indisputably. Um, and remember, I'm not saying I'm for socialized medicine. I'm merely pointing out some ideas from the left which we must, with which we must reconcile, okay? And another thing, lots of these drugs have counterparts who use a similar uh, mechanism of action, but which cost about 90% less sometimes. I mean, one example, if you work with me, you'll know, is like heparin and angiomax or bival. Um, we use these to prevent blood clots in patients who may be at risk for heart attack or stroke or have, you know, a mechanical device of some kind implanted inside of them. Um, well, our heparin bags cost about $130 and our angio bags cost about three grand, right? And fortunately, I'll be honest, I, I'm, I would have a bias to lie in this scenario, but I'm, I'm, you have to believe me, I'm being totally honest here. I have not seen this at Duke or in my time in Utah, but you can't tell me that in, if a hospital is strapped for cash, that they wouldn't at least think about pushing their docs to pre prescribe more angio, the more expensive drug, to help out their bottom line, right? They got bills to pay too. And, you know, there's dozens of drugs with rivals that are priced this way. Um, and when it comes to healthcare, you know, you are supposed to pick the best option for the patient outcome, right? Price should not be a factor. Um, and I don't want that temptation coming into play. I know too many scumbags. I've seen too much to believe that nobody would pre would prescribe something 10 times more expensive, maybe even if it was 75% as effective. Um, you know, look at the EpiPen lady, if you don't believe me. So, you know, therein lies my issue with for-profit healthcare services. Your customer is only your customer because he is dying and needs you to save him. It just... It doesn't seem to me to be a free market system. So I think we need to, we need to reconcile with that. Um, and then here's another thing that you may not have seen. There is a ton of disparity in chronic disease prevalence between races. Um, I mean, you can find this anywhere, but just this one study I got here, uh, it's a 2013 report from the National Health Institute. Um, one quick example, 13.2% of Puerto Rican American kids were diagnosed with asthma. All right, 9.5% of black kids and just 7% of white kids are, are diagnosed with asthma. Um, and if anything, that data is, is skewed to make it seem closer than it is because whites typically have more access to being diagnosed in the first place. All right, so their numbers are probably artificially lower for the other groups. Um, and, you know, the same report found that black kids had four times the emergency room visits for asthma exacerbation than whites, four times. They also had 7.6 times uh, the death rate. They had 7.6 times the death rate due to asthma as white kids, all right? That's pretty staggering. And, uh, you know, the heart disease numbers are even worse than that. I used to think this is BS, but there does seem to be some genetic link to, for example, why black people have such a higher prevalence for heart disease when you rule out all confounding variables. And, um, a lot of that, believe it or not, actually comes from salt sensitivity. Um, salt really seems to affect black people much more intensely than it does whites, um, which <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, I, I'm going to go ahead and apologize here for the way that I used to think. Um, you know, there's this funny sort of ubiquitous joke now about how white people don't know how to season their chicken. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a very popular meme type joke on the Internet. And it's hilarious because it's true. You know, we're certainly not, we certainly do not have a storied history in the poultry cuisine department. Um, but I used to be like, you know, well, maybe if you ate more white people chicken, you wouldn't have so much heart disease. 
Uh, well, as it turns out, I was wrong. So, regardless of the amount salt, uh, the amount of salt that black people eat, they do tend to have poorer digestibility and elimination of sodium chloride for some odd reason. So, <laughs> I apologize for what may even be considered a smidge racist. Um, you know, I meant it in good faith, obviously, but now I know the truth. And if that is true, if by dent of skin color, roughly 14% of the population has a, procl a proclivity for debilitating heart disease, then, I mean, wouldn't that qualify as an unavoidable circumstance that we spoke about in the previous episode? Um, I mean, what are you going to charge black people more for insurance just because their DNA makes them more susceptible to costing more over time? That's not fair. So, I don't know if universal healthcare is the answer, but it certainly is a valid question that we should consider. Um, and then last thing here was the employer-linked healthcare coverage system that we're under now, where you know most people get their health insurance through their employer. Um, I'll be honest, I don't really have a strong stance on this yet. I haven't really worked out all the kinks of my own argument, so I'm just going to tell you what I'm playing around with in my head and see if you can help me work out a situation that could work because I just don't know enough yet and I haven't spent enough time on this to have a strong opinion. Um, but if you've been laid off due to the coronavirus shutdown and lost your health care as a result, then you've seen firsthand how this affects working class families. And yeah, you can buy your own insurance, but like for me, I went to I moved to Utah in October for six months. Um, I took a leave of absence from Duke, so I had to I had to temporarily pause my Duke plan and shop around um, for a private plan. And listen, I I scoured the internet, I shopped around, I tried to find the best option I could find, and it took my monthly premium from fifteen dollars to one hundred and seventy five dollars, and it increased my copay from zero dollars to like three hundred. Um, I mean, I got an X-ray and a cortisone shot in my shoulder. I got a little osteolysis in my clavicle. Um, and it cost me $600 out of pocket. It was ridiculous. Uh, and the whole, you know, mo the, the main argument for the employer-linked system is that, again, you need a large pool of people to chip in a little bit each month to cover a smaller group of people who require some level of funding. So, like, if you have, you know, a thousand employees in your company, then there's your pool right there. So when, you know, two or three dozen people get sick and need surgery this month, the other, you know, 950 people uh, can supplement the cost with their monthly payments and not strap the other people with massive bills. Um, well, you know, I'm not sure you can find a larger pool than 350 million Americans if we were to do universal health care. Um, and again, we can say deregulate and allow more competition. But let me tell you, the first thing that these new insurance companies are going to do if you deregulate and you take away all the rules they have to follow, they're going to start charging a fat fee and a cigarette fee and a pre-existing condition fee, all right? And I can tell you a few things with absolute certainty, but I can assure you that that is not going to go over well, okay? <laughs> but again, I'm still in the very early stages of forming this opinion, so please feel free to give me some more insights. Um... That's pretty much all I've got so far, so I hope I was able to make you think of a few things you maybe hadn't considered. Uh, maybe I weakened your argument for either side. Maybe I strengthened it. It's a tough topic, I know, but um, you know, if you don't challenge your narrative, your preconceived notions, then you'll never make any progress. But just to reiterate, I am against socialized medicine as a whole. I think we already have way too many people riding in the wagon and not enough people pulling the wagon.
And the more people that get into that wagon, the wagon being free benefits from the government, then the harder it is for the people to pull the wagon, the taxpayers. And, you know, the wagon pullers are going to start looking inside that wagon and say, man, that looks pretty damn comfortable. That looks a lot easier than working out here all day and night to keep these people moving. All right, screw this. I'm joining them. Scoot over. I'm, I'm getting in the wagon. And then before too long, there's no one who can pull the wagon. I will leave you with that. And I will see you next time on Necessary Evil, where people are sovereign, where all government measure is enforced by the point of gun, and where state power is in direct conflict with individual liberty. Thanks a lot.